Welcome to the Kanoi Church Podcast. We're glad that you're interested in connecting through this teaching time. If you'd like to connect further, feel free to reach out to us through our website, kanoichurch.org. For now, enjoy this teaching from Kanoi Church, where our mission is to lead people into a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. Um, before I get into the lesson this morning really quick, um, just thought I would just take two, two quick minutes. Nobody's asked me this question, but I thought maybe it might be in some people's heads. The question might be, why are we doing this series? Because it seems like maybe some of these topics are tricky or could be controversial. So why is it important that we talk about topics that are tricky and controversial? Um, and so here's my really quick explanation. Recently, I was turned on to a book uh, written by a woman named uh, Tamise Spencer-Helms, and it's called Faith Unleavened. And she points out that when God's people leave captivity in Egypt, um, they couldn't take leavened bread with them. In fact, right before Pharaoh releases God's people, God tells them that they have to make bread without yeast, remove yeast from all of their homes, and that if anybody eats anything with yeast, they're actually supposed to be uh, cut off from Israel, which is a pretty harsh rule all in all. But if you think about it, if Moses, and this is not what happens, but if Moses was to go around to all of the houses and inspect the bread to see which bread had yeast and which bread didn't, it would be pretty easy to tell, right? Some bread would kind of pop up and some bread and some bread wouldn't. Um, you'd be able to tell, or Moses would be able to tell, which bread had something in it that wasn't supposed to be there. I have a friend who has uh, celiac disease, and uh, that's an immune disorder that's triggered by eating gluten. And so if she has gluten on purpose or by accident, she can get really sick. Even small amounts, she can get incredibly sick and even have to go to the hospital um, if it goes untreated. She ignores the symptoms and decides to buy regular bread and just eat regular bread, pretend like she doesn't have the disease, she can get incredibly sick and eventually even die because of this disease. Sometimes it matters what's in our bread. It has occurred to me over the course of my life, over the course of my journey with Jesus, um, of you know, my study of Christianity, that you know, Jesus thankfully, boldly claimed to be the bread of life. And it's also occurred to me that there are times that we have unintentionally or intentionally maybe added some stuff to the bread. And sometimes that stuff has caused no problems, and sometimes that stuff has uh, maybe made us a little sick. And, um, and so m my hope is that we can talk about some topics that might be a little tricky and might be a little controversial so that we can understand them better so that we can um, be more well-versed in them, so that we know what is actually the bread of life and what isn't. Because we live in a world where education 
is happening faster and faster and easier and easier. And a person can spend just a little bit of time on this little device and become very educated very quickly on any topic. And that education sometimes is good and true, and sometimes it's not. So how do we, as believers, become knowledgeable on some of these topics that are controversial and tricky um, so that we can have conversations with people that we care a lot about and we hope will know Jesus without maybe being fooled by some of the things that are out there, right? So that's why I think it's important to talk about these things as hard and tricky as they may be. And that's why for the summer, we might be talking a bit more in some uh, educational capacity, um, but why I think it's really worth it too. So I do encourage, by the way, questions. So if you, we talk about something on a Sunday morning and you end up with some questions, hit me up during the week. I'm happy to, uh, to engage you on those things and try to um, clarify some things or even do some more research for you to answer some more questions. So today, we're gonna talk about a non-controversial topic, something that nobody cares about, uh, clearly, right? If you see your bulletin, anybody see their bulletin? Yeah, get a bulletin when you walked in? Yeah, okay, good. Is it on the screen? Yeah, yeah? No, that's not controversial, right? Why does it matter we talk about hell? Because we hear a lot about hell. I mean, whether you're a Christian or you're not a Christian, we hear a lot about hell. And, uh, and generally, there's even confusion about hell because there's a lot of scripture about hell. And sometimes those scripture passages don't seem like they line up. They kind of talk about it differently in different places. Um, it even seems like sometimes the same people talk about it differently. And then different people talk about it differently. And sometimes people even will say, I heard somebody say on a video online that hell doesn't exist. Or it's a man-made thing or something like that. Um, or we'll hear that hell doesn't line up with Jesus. Jesus is love. Jesus didn't really talk about hell. We'll hear all kinds of things like that, right? So what's the deal with hell? That's what I kind of want to talk about this morning. And what I can do on a Sunday morning is really just give you an overview, honestly. Um, and all I'm going to do is teach you what to be in like a basic Bible class uh, and not, not more than that. And all I'm going to do is teach you what would be uh, considered like an orthodox traditional belief. I am not going to teach you that there is no hell because I think that is ungenuine. I don't think that's correct. There's too much scripture about it for anybody to get up and say, you can just ignore all of that. Okay? Uh, I provided you with a handout in your Bible as well, or in your Bible, in your bulletin. I looked at my Bible when I said that, so the wrong B word came out. Um, anyway, there's a handout in your bulletin for reference as well, uh, so just know that that's in there. And if you didn't pick a bulletin up, you can pick one up on your way out so you can have that handout as well. Um, but I do think that as Christians, we should be able to talk about some of these kind of things, and, and hell is one of them. So, let's go. First, let's talk about the Old Testament. Because the Old Testament covers a lot of time. You know, God's people have been, 
have been around for a long time. They've gone by several different names, the Jews, the Israelites, the Hebrews. And before the time of Jesus, you know, before the founding of Christianity, the Old Testament, our, our version of the Old Testament, right? The Bible is a recording of their history, their poetry, their songs, their interactions with God, their observations about God. And in that time, what did they think happens when somebody dies? And that is covered by this word. Sheol, okay? Which might be a word you've never heard before. And so let me get a verse up here on the screen. Isaiah 38, 18. Uh, This is from King Hezekiah. King Hezekiah got really, really sick at one point in his reign. And when he was getting better, he wrote a poem or a song And he was trying to say, why did God make me better? And so his answer to why did God make me better was, well, if I had died, then I wouldn't be able to give glory to God. And so this is what he says. For Sheol cannot thank you. Death cannot praise you. Those who go down to the pit cannot hope for your faithfulness. Okay? So there's the word Sheol being used. Uh, Numbers 16.33. This would be in the time of Moses. And you might remember the story of Korah's rebellion. Korah is a person who led a rebellion against Moses' leadership. And this story ends with Korah's rebellion and all the people associated with Korah being sucked into the earth. So the the verse here says, so they and all that belonged to them went down alive to Sheol and the earth closed over them and they perished from the midst of the assembly. So what is Sheol? Sheol is a word that describes the shadowy place that all people went when they died. Whether you're good or you're bad, you went to the same place. It wasn't originally thought to be a good place or a bad place. It was thought of to be a place where everybody sort of went and they waited. Spirits didn't have any real consciousness. Nobody was thinking about stuff. They didn't really know about stuff. They weren't aware of things. This is just where the spirit went when they died. But we do get stories in Scripture uh, in the Old Testament where, like, Saul finds a medium and calls Samuel back from the dead. Do you remember this story? And so he has the medium call Samuel back from the dead. And when Samuel, the spirit of Samuel, comes back, he says, why are you bothering me and calling me back up like this? And so, clearly, Sheol is probably a little bit better than maybe this place. He's bothered by being brought back from Sheol to this place. And there is some method of calling a spirit back in some way, shape, or form. We also know that um, in 1 Kings 17, Elijah is with this woman who needs oil and food, and he's providing this miracle, but her son dies. And when her son dies, Elijah performs this miracle and resurrects the son. And so the spirit returns to the son's body. So there's some sort of like ability again for resurrection. But in the time of the Old Testament, Sheol is the word that describes where spirits go when they die. This is the understanding that the Jews would have had of where they go. There are kind of two important things to say before I kind of move on here. In Jesus' time, there's two religious Groups, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the big thing that separates them is a disagreement, well, one of the things, on resurrection. 
So there's a big issue as to whether or not there will be a resurrection of the spirits. And remember, the concept is this concept of Sheol. And so there's really one very clear Old Testament reference to resurrection, and that's in Daniel 12, 2. I think I put that in the computer. Yes, okay. Uh, and it says, multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. So is there resurrection from Sheol or not? And again, what you're seeing here is if you'll notice in that verse, there's this idea that some awake to goodness, some awake to everlasting contempt, right? So we're beginning to see a development of this idea of good and bad, a separation between the two. So in the original idea, Sheol was a place where everybody goes, not really any separation, but we're beginning to see there's a sense of there's maybe two places. Upon resurrection, there's a place where good go and where bad go, okay? The next place that is really an important piece of information is how do we get from this long-term idea, Hebrew word, Sheol, to the more modern idea that we have of hell? About 200 years before Jesus is on the scene, so to say, um, the Hebrew scriptures begin to be translated into Greek. And when they're translating the Hebrew scriptures into Greek, they have to figure out how to translate this word Sheol, which can't be an easy job, right? How do you translate uh, the Jewish idea of what happens when you die into Greek? And so they have a word that they use. And that word is Hades, okay? Now, Hades is, like everywhere you see Sheol in Hebrew, when they translate all the Hebrew stuff into Greek, then you start seeing the word Hades. And you might say, okay, Nick, well, why is it important? Why is that word important? Well, it's important because there are two Greek words. I'm gonna write this on here now. Let's see. This says Gehenna. And over here is our English column. It says hell. Okay, so Sheol comes Hades. Hades and Gehenna become hell in English. Um, before you think that Hades is just a word in Greek, Hades was a word in Greek for a long time. That was the Greeks' understanding of what happens when you die, okay? So Sheol was the, the Jews' understanding, the Israelites' understanding of what happens when you die. Hades was the Greeks' understanding of what happens when you die. So when they translate from Hebrew to Greek, they're like, hey, we have a good word here. Let's use that word. And there are similarities between Sheol and Hades. They're both dark, uh, dreary, dismal places. Souls linger there. But there are some differences too, okay? Um, in the Greek version of Hades, there is some nicer places for good people and some not-so-nice places for bad people. And in the Greek world, there's a guy named Plato. And Plato has this idea that when you die, your body is corrupt. So your body pff, is done, 
but your soul, that your soul is a good thing, and that goes somewhere good when you die. So, in Greek, Hades has some ideas associated with it already, but it's the best translation of this word, and there's some ideas that go along with Hades already. So we have to remember that. If they had just not translated the word Sheol, anybody speaking Greek would really have no idea what Sheol means. You'd have to do a whole lot of work to explain this concept. Nobody would understand. But by translating Sheol into Hades, they understand exactly what you're talking about. Oh, it's the afterlife. This is where people go when you die. But now you run the risk of some baggage being added to it, right? Does that make sense? You with me? Okay. Um, what's a verse that has Hades in it? Matthew 16, 18, where Jesus says, And I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. That is where Hades is in the Bible. Now, when you open up your English Bible, you're going to see the word hell. Because again, everywhere that you have these two words, in English we translate them as, as hell. Okay? Now, what's Gehenna? Gehenna is the Valley of Hinnom, uh, or also we call it the Valley of Gehenna. And one of the things that I have heard a lot over the years is that it was a trash dump outside of the city of Jerusalem. And it was a trash dump where everything was on fire, and it was always on fire, and it was smoky, perpetually burning fires. Um, but that is not accurate. The Valley of Hinnom was a place where about a thousand years before Jesus' time, some of the evil kings of Israel actually sacrificed their children as burnt offerings. And they were punished by God for it. It was part of the exile, part of the reason that God allowed his people to be exiled, taken over by others, is because of the evil. You can look at this in the Old Testament. It's because of the evil that the kings did. And some of the evil that they perpetrated was child sacrifice. This was the location that they did it. And so the Valley of Hinnom, or Gehenna, became associated with death, fire, sacrifice, wickedness. And that was sort of the idea of Gehenna even in Jesus' day. Now, the question then becomes, we know we get Sheol, becomes Hades, there's this Gehenna that's associated with wickedness. In our New Testament, even Jesus uses both Hades and Gehenna. And when we go to an English Bible, hell is the word that translates both of those. The real question that, oh, what's, a, what's an example of a verse for Gehenna? I forgot to say that. Uh, Matthew 5, 22. Again, Jesus speaking. But I tell you that this is from the, right before the Sermon on the Mount. No, it is the Sermon on the Mount. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or a sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court, and anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of Gehenna. Again, in your English Bible, it says hell, okay? Um, but this, he would be saying Gehenna, he is referencing this place outside of the city of Jerusalem, just south of the city of Jerusalem, where this terrible thing happened in Israel's past, in the Jews' past. It's associated with just awful things. And one of the reasons that we know it wasn't a trash dump with perpetually burning fires forever is because we've studied the area. Archaeologists have dug it up. 
And that was not what happened there, okay? But by the time Jesus is living and teaching, then what do we understand hell to mean, right? We understand how we get to this word, but when Jesus is teaching about it, what does he mean? That's the thing that I think people really want to understand, and that's what I want to make sure that you guys know. And that's also where your handout comes in, okay? One of the things, uh, again, that I want to say is I do think it's really unfair, and I think it's um, disingenuine for folks to say the Bible doesn't show up in Scripture, that there's no Scripture to back it up, and all of that. I don't think that is right. I don't think that is fair. There is clear teaching that it is there. There's clear scripture that it is there. Even if there is some scripture that talks about it in different ways, which I'm gonna show you here. Regardless, hell is a thing. There's belief in hell. It's just a matter of exactly what does that say. So in the first 500 years of Christianity, there was six known theological schools that we have record of and records of what they taught, which gives us a good idea of what the popular teaching was of the day about various theological things, hell is one of them, okay? So we can go back to those first early years of the church, back when there was a singular church, before the first church split, before there was ever a Catholic church, an Orthodox church, or a Protestant church. We're going way back in time. What was the teaching then? Well, in the first 500 years of the church, we have... Um, like I said, a variety of church. So Alexandria, Antioch, um, Caesarea, and Odessa. We had Ephesus and Rome. These are the six known for sure um, theological schools that taught you know, the bishops and the pastors. And when you look back in all of these theological textbooks and we read about and we, we talk about, and even some of the folks that we talked about in our series so far, these were where they were educated, okay? These are the, the folks that they're talking about. Um, and so what's rock, paper, scissors, Nick? This is the easy way that I can give you to remember the teachings about hell. Okay, there's really three traditional ways to know what was taught about hell. And so um, it's not the game, rock, paper, scissors, shoot. I want you to think, yeah, uh, all right. I want you to think about a fire, okay? What happens when you throw each of these things into a fire, okay? So if you throw a rock into the fire, it just sits there, right? And it just burns, okay? So... In this place, we would have something called eternal, conscious, torment, okay? That doesn't seem right. That right, okay. Paper, if you throw paper into a fire, what happens? Well, for a moment, it burns, and then it disappears. And so this view, oh, I need spell check on a whiteboard. That's really what I need. Annihilationism. I'm trying, Jeff. 
All right, annihilationism is that one. So it burns up and then it's gone. And then scissors is the next one. And so this one is, is a little bit different. This is it's a, it's a fancy word, apocatastasis. Or easier, reconciliation, okay? What you'll notice then too is that in that early period of the church, that first 500 years, this view is actually the most popular. We have four schools that teach this view. And there's only one school for each of these. Now, today, in our current modern world, as I explain these things to you, I think it's actually really flip-flopped. This is probably the least popular view, um, and these two are more popular. Probably this is the most popular, I would think, but you know, it's somewhere in the one of those two. Um, but that's, that's sort of the, the thing. I, I wanna remind you really quick again though, each of these three are traditionally accepted views on hell. If somebody were to say, I believe this or this or this, we wouldn't say you are wrong because these again are the traditionally accepted views on hell. And the interesting thing is, again, if you look at your handout, there are a lot of scripture to back up every single one of these, and you'll find some of the same people talking about each of these, including Jesus. Why? Why in the world would even Jesus use language to talk about each of these things? Well, I don't know because I wasn't there, but I would theorize. Like, remember Paul said um, that I will be all things to all people as a way to win people to the Lord. Well, if you have folks that are believing this and then Jesus encounters them, well, then this is the framework in which Jesus is gonna talk with them, right? If you have folks that believe this and Jesus is talking with them, having a conversation with them, this is gonna be the framework that Jesus is gonna talk with them in or this, right? Because all of these things are getting at the same concept, okay? And so Jesus is engaging with them as a way to engage them in their relationship with God as a way to win them to the Lord, okay? So, again, this idea is that you are alive, not alive, you're dead. You are aware, okay? You're in hell, you're aware, and you are being tormented for eternity. That's this view of hell. What's a verse that talks about that? Well. Matthew 18, eight says, if your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life maimed or crippled than to have two hands or two feet and be thrown into eternal fire. There's this reference about eternal fire, eternal flame, okay? Paper is annihilationism. So the idea here again is that you go to hell and there is, there's punishment, but Temporary. It's not forever. It's temporary because a paper burns for a time and then it's gone. Okay? What's a verse that would be referencing that? Matthew 7 19 says, Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown to the fire. It's not referencing eternal fire, it's referencing fire, a tree, it burns up and it's gone. Scissors, a pocket of sasis, this is more like um, scissors get put in a fire and what happens? Think of it like a doctor who is sterilizing their equipment before they're using it in surgery. The idea here is that 
all of the impurities are being burned off, right? So that you're cleaning the instrument. Um, it's the, the idea of hell isn't meant to be, no, I shouldn't say that. It's punishment, but the long-term effect of the flames is not punishment, it's restorative. The idea is that the flames burn away the bad so that you are left with only what is good. And so what's a verse that would be talking about something like that? John 12, 32, where Jesus says, and when I am lifted up, I will draw all people to myself. And so there's a variety of references throughout scripture that talk about the reconciliation of all people or all things, um, the whole world, all mankind being reconciled in that way. The pointy-tailed devil with a pitchfork, that doesn't show up in the Bible. That comes from artworks and stories and books that are written a thousand years later uh, during the, the Renaissance and medieval time. So that's it. That's, that's sort of the, the whole thing on, on hell. Those are the, and, and that's, again, why I gave you your handout, so that you can see the verses that tell uh, varying different things. And again, know that if you're like, hey, when I read the Bible and I think about hell, what I picture is this. Okay, that's fine. And if you're somebody who says, when I read the Bible, what I picture is actually ceasing to exist. Okay. And if you are, what is probably the minority view today, somebody who says, when I read the Bible and I think about hell, I think about a place where eventually there's reconciliation that happens, okay. Because all of these things are views that are accepted in the church. Even if some of them are less popular and some of them are more popular. One of the things that we have to ask ourselves though, and this is something that I think is important to point out as we talk about hell or any of these topics that we were talking about this summer, is on what level does this matter? Because in some places and in some conversations, we have made it a very primary issue, okay? But is it a primary issue is the question. Hell has never been the thing that makes you saved. It doesn't. What makes you saved? Ephesians tells us it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. It's not by yourself. It is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. We have to remember to keep the main things the main things. There are conversations that are good to have, that are fun to have, that we should enjoy engaging, and we should even be able to talk about with some level of knowledge with people. But to remember what is the point of our faith is really important. Our belief in God, the gift of grace, and the work of Jesus Christ, that is essential. That is at the center of the bullseye. We can't forget that. Now, one thing I will say, though, as I wrap this up, is our belief in hell does tend to be a mirror that does show us a bit about ourselves. And I'm speaking for me right now. 
Okay, I'm not trying to speak for anybody else in this room. I speak for myself. Do we lean more towards punitive or restorative? Do I lean more towards punishment or restoration? Either we're people who lean one way or the other. My wife has to catch my heart all the time on this, especially as I'm a father raising children, right? When one of my kids gets in trouble and they get a consequence, the thing that I do quickly is provide the consequence, you know, the punishment. And I think, okay, if they get the punishment for going this way, they will learn not to go that way and choose a new way. Okay, right? I mean, that makes sense to me. I think that's probably a part of the way that I was brought up. You know, you learn by getting your hand slapped for touching that button. So if I get my hand smacked enough times, I stop touching the button, right? Okay. Carissa is, is much better at taking the time after the punishment to help the child connect the dots of why did I get in trouble? Uh, what could I do better? Or even helping the child who got in trouble go to the child that they wronged and make the situation right. And when I watch her do those things, I think, man, I think her heart looks more like Jesus than mine. If, if I'm picturing Jesus, I think her heart looks more like Jesus than mine in this situation. And I really appreciate that. It's, a, it's an area where I go, well, it's an area where I go, man, I'm glad I married up again. But it's an area where I go, I think this is a part of my heart that needs to continue to be shaped and molded to look more like Jesus. Or one, one last story. I have a friend who owns a business. And some years ago, uh, some guys broke into the place where he stores his trucks and they cut out and stole like a dozen catalytic converters from his trucks. And um, certainly that wasn't a great morning in his business when he shows up and those are all gone and they have to you know, get those trucks fixed, get them back on the road so the business can operate and he's got to do it all out of pocket till insurance can reimburse him and, and all of that stuff, right? That's, that's a bad morning. And those thieves were eventually caught by the police and because of some priors, they ended up going to prison and doing some time in prison. And um, when one of the young men came up for parole, the DA uh, approached him and just notified him in case he wanted to go to the parole hearing and speak. And I think the DA was like, in case you want to go and speak so he doesn't get parole. That was, the, that was the plan. That was the idea. And my friend was praying about it. And he felt like he heard this voice that was leading him to go speak. So he, you know, contacted the DA, cleared it with him, set it up. And, um, and what he heard this, this voice saying to him was, this young man is not going to get paroled unless he's got some things set up for when he gets out. And one of those things is job. So offer this young man a job. Go speak at the hearing and offer him a job. And he called me, and he was like, Nick, do you think I'm crazy? Like, does this sound insane? This guy robbed me. He's been in jail. I don't know him. But I just, I feel like that's what I'm hearing. And I was like, man, I don't think you're crazy. You know the risks. Like, this could go really bad. So you know the risks. But you can't ignore that voice. 
You prayed about it, you heard the voice, and that is the voice of the God of restoration. That's what you're hearing. So no matter what you believe about this stuff, right, God cares about how you live today. Like when you walk out those doors and you go home and you hang out with your family or you're downstairs for the fellowship meal or you are at work this week, whatever you're doing, God cares about how you live right here and right now. And I think God desires people with a Jesus-shaped heart. That is one of the biggest reasons that he sent Jesus to this earth was to show us the way. I am the bread of life. He was setting an example for us. I'm still learning about, clearly, where my heart needs to be shaped more like Jesus. But I am so glad that I am surrounded by people who are giving that example to me, who are showing me what it looks like to be more focused on restoration than it is for me to be focused on punishment. And so when I take a child and I say, let's go make this right, I might feel awkward and weird and more easily for me to go, don't touch the button, but I'm trying really hard to figure out a new way because I honestly think that that new way is so much better than the way that feels natural, right? And I think that, in a nutshell, is what it means for us to be embracing the gospel every single day. It's for us to say, look, there's this way that feels like I've always done it, a way that maybe I learned, a way that feels natural, but I saw a better way by somebody whose heart looks more Jesus-shaped than mine. I'm gonna try that way, even if it feels weird, even if I'm a little awkward at it, till I get better at it. That's what it means to follow Jesus. This week, follow him. Be awkward. It's okay, because you're awkward for Jesus, okay? Give it a shot. The only way you're not gonna be awkward is if you get through the awkward stage, right? Teenagers are awkward. They are. But when they finally get out of being a teenager, most of the time, they leave the awkwardness behind. You're gonna have to get through that stage, just like I'm trying to get through it right now. Hopefully, my kids are still young enough that I get through the awkward stage before they're all, they're all teenagers, okay? I'm gonna keep trying. Try. We got, it. we got this thing. We can do this. Let's keep the main things the main things, and let's live into this gospel that we know is right in front of us. Amen? Let's pray. Hi, this is Pastor Nick. Thanks for listening. I hope something that you heard today was very helpful. If you want to connect with us further, feel free to check us out on Facebook, Instagram, or our website, kanoichurch.org. Sure, I'm glad we're in this together. Thank you.